Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, not much to talk about before we get on to today's podcast, which is going to be the second part of the interview with Dan Culpepper on his travels across the Atlantic from east to west in the northern Atlantic, around the 40th parallel or thereabouts. Uh, But I do want to let people know that if they're coming through Salt Lake and you want to get together to go skiing or to have lunch or to meet up, I always like to meet my listeners face-to-face. That's what this is all about. I'm not, a, I'm not a Twitter guy. I'm not a Facebook guy. I'm a person-to-person guy. So if you're coming through, make sure you let me know. I will be putting together my summer sailing schedule, hopefully sometime in January. I've had a few people that have wanted to become on my sailing crew list. And, uh, and if you are interested in possibly being invited to go sail, again, my priorities are my priorities are family gets the first choice in crew positions and then clients, my actual business clients. You know, I do run a business here and I like to take care of my clients. I manage client portfolios, investments for clients. Been doing that since 1985 in one form or another. So I've been at this business a long time. And then after that comes friends. And friends do include everybody that sailed with me prior to this point in time, which would include Brian, Jack Andrews, and Neil Fletcher. And then after that, if I'm not full for the summer, then I would invite new, new guests. And uh, that would include the patrons first, and then anybody else that's in line from this podcast that are interested in sailing with me. I like to take people out to go sailing. I like to introduce them. If you don't have a lot of experience, that really doesn't matter. I just like to create memories for people. So if you're interested in joining me, make sure you drop me a note with a bit of a resume, a couple pictures of yourself, and uh, I'll put you on the list. And when I put together the summer sailing schedule, I will put it out in the order I just said to people. And as the crew fills up, there may be openings, and I will let you know. Let me thank our sponsor, Sailrite, before we get on to the interview with Dan. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite UltraFeed sewing machine. The UltraFeed is a portable, heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your maritime sewing projects from sails to covers. At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at Sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E dot com. So if you really like this podcast, go on to the iTunes directory or whatever directory you use to download podcasts and write a review. I'd appreciate it. And if you have any thoughts or suggestions or comments, or if you want to get on the summer sale list, write me franz1 at medsailor.com. 
Now let's get on to part two of my interview with Dan Culpepper on his east to west northern Atlantic crossing last summer. Now I'm, I'm back with Dan Culpepper, and the last time we were talking, he was talking about the running of the bulls on Tercera Island and Angora do, do Hiroshima. And yeah, I was talking a lot of bull. Yeah, yeah. you were a talking bull, a lot of bull. That's right. So, yeah. So, okay. Anyway, we, 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 uh, Tercera was great. We stayed at a, at a, at a, at a, a banana, a, a, it, was, it was called Banana Camp. And it was, it was in this, uh, in, in these banana trees all, all around inside. And it was about as rustic as they're basically lean tos all together. And it really appealed, I think, to the, to the backpacker 20 something year olds. And, and, and it was my kid's favorite place. They, they loved it. You know, they, they thought it was so cool. And, uh, we each kind of, kind of stayed there and some stayed on the boat and we stayed in another place, uh, in town closer to where the boat was. And uh, we kind of went all around. So it was kind of funky, and I, I thought it was kind of cool, too. And uh, it was more like camping than, than anything else. But it was another experience, and just a lot of experience on the islands. I, again, I mentioned about how, how, how cool the Azores were uh, in terms of, uh, of just nature and, and, and getting out there and the food and the culture and the people. Uh, it's, it's a great destination. So, um, Sir Tercera, and Tercera means third in, in Portuguese because it was the third island discovered. And, and inadvertently, we had gone in the order in which the islands were all discovered. And Santa Maria was the first one. And then, uh, then uh, San Miguel was the second one. And Tercera was the third one. So and it was the third island for the crew, second for the family. And from there, uh, we went to uh, Fayal, which is the, probably the most famous for sailors uh, place because it has Horta, which right. is the leg- legendary port. As uh, you went through there, right? Franz? Right. Yep. Went through Horta. Uh-huh. Yep. And that's that's where where everyone goes, if especially if they're making the west to east. Uh, so that you is skipped over Sao George and uh, this Pico. You, so you didn't stop at Sao George or Pico then. No, and some of the people did who took a ferry. Okay. Some some took a ferry. <laughs> they took a ferry trip, and we we beat them. <laughs> so so. They took one of these ferry trips in early in the morning, right before we left. They took off and they went to like every island. First, they yeah, they they went to every island. It took forever. <laughs> and at some point, they took a picture of us from the ferry. Oh, as okay. as as it went around San George Island, uh, they had stopped on the north coast of it. And as they went around, we we called them. We talked to them on the phone, or we were texting. And uh, we told them where we were, and they said, "No, no, we see you. We can see you." <laughs> so. And, uh, and anyway, we arrived just about the same time and, and we got into, to Horta together. Did you see much, had, did you see much ahead. other, did you see much other sailboat traffic along the way? No, we did not see when we were out sailing, we did not see a lot of, a, a lot of boats. I think a lot go into Horta and then they, some do go to the other islands, but I don't think there were more than maybe 10 boats in each one. Maybe Angra was a little bit bigger, but it had some some locals had had boats, pretty much small power boats, and then maybe maybe twenty five other boats were there at the most in Angra, and then uh, in Horta, Horta was loaded, packed, right, packed with boats. It always packed. is, yeah. So, and I think that was one of the reasons why they've they put marinas in other other islands because they just need to, you know, relieve that 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 squeeze that's in, going on in Horta. 
and uh, we lucked out when we got in a Horta in that we could tie up. We were the second boat out near the fuel dock, but like one over, there was an Italian boat there with a French crew. They were delivering it. And they were in no hurry. They had they had some damage to a sail that they were getting repaired. And that's the thing about Horta. There are, all the services are there. They had they have um, mazes there, which is um, mid Atlantic yacht services called Maze. And it's terrific. It's a small little place. Uh, and you go in and they have really everything you need. <laughs> it's, it's astounding. I needed, I needed a new, um, uh, a pin for, for one of my shackles. And I, I went in there and I showed the, the shackle without a pin. They went into a drawer and pulled out the exact pin I needed, right length, same size. And so it's a, it's a really terrific, uh, facility and an asset to have in Horta. And, and that's the reason why a lot, a lot of sailors are there. They have a sail loft and, and, and repairs can all be done there. The infrastructure is there where, where uh, the other islands, there, there is no infrastructure and they probably send it back to Horta in a ferry, but, uh, but they do have the marinas and the other places. And, and, uh, and we told people that when we got, get to Horta, so you got to check out these other islands. No, no, we're heading to Europe. You know, most people, you know, most people are, are on their way. And it was, it's just a stop off point to them. And, and we made that mistake last time in 2015. And that's why we, we made the return. And that's the mistake the, I made too. It's exactly the mistake yeah. I made as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then we rectify it on the way back, Franz, because that it's, uh, it, it's what we knew when we left last time that we had to come back to these islands. And that's when we started doing the family things with all my sisters and cousins and uncle and, and uh, we we did the first one in Italy when we were in Italy, and then we did one in Morocco when everyone showed up Morocco the summer before last. And then we said, "Hey, let's do the Azores." So we all did the Azores. I mean, this coming summer we're probably going to do someplace in Maine or maybe Nova Scotia. And you know, it's it's a cheap excuse to get together. So, so this is so this is in June. You're here or July that you're in Horton. So now we're it's July. Okay. So we're um. Let me see what I mean. See the exact dates where we're uh, the 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 family stuff, uh, Newport, I'm going to do a Newport here. Uh, yeah. June is when we were, um, yeah, June is when we left on the June 8th, 9th and then the trip into Santa Maria on the 17th. And then we got to, uh, we got to the big break on the Island. Sorry. It takes so much time That's here okay. trying to figure out. Yeah. From June 20th to July 6th, it was family okay. time in the Azores. And so that that's when we were in, in San Miguel, Tercera and, and Fayal from uh, yeah June 20th to July 6th. So we got the, the fun in Horta of having July 4th with uh, the boat completely decorated, red, white and blue and, and you know, inviting the Brits and the French and, and everyone else to to uh, come to the party aboard our boat. We had a great time and the whole family aboard the boat and on the fourth and then everyone kind of left on the fifth, the sixth. And then we finally left Horta on the 8th of July. All right. So, the, so did you, trip. did you paint your boat's name? Did you do your banner on the walkway in Horta when you were there again? Yes, we did. Yeah. If you, if you get on our website, you can see a photo of it. And actually I had yesterday, I was, I was watching one of these, uh, uh, videos, uh, YouTube videos on, on, you know, people traveling, et cetera, what I'm kind of addicted to, you know, the, the vagabond and, and, uh, Delos and uh, rigging doctor and a bunch of these other ones. Uh, they, they'd gone through Azores. I forget which one it did. And they were showing pictures of the wall 
and uh, and I saw our painting. So I saw the one that our daughters had done, and and it, it was really cool. I took a screenshot of it and sent it to my daughter. It's still there. It's still there. And uh, yeah, my my two daughters, uh, Maddie and and Hel Helen, did the uh, did the painting. So I sent them up with a bunch of things, and it, it, it was cool. They did a great job. They did a great job. So uh, all right. And so it's still so, there. so remind us of the website address again. It's just sailingheldaline.com, which is uh, Heldaline is Helen and Madeline, my two daughters' names. So it's H E L D E L E I N E. So it's sailingheldaline, one word, uh, .com. And yeah, it has my the blog on it and more, many more pictures and, and things. But there's definitely a picture of the, uh, of the wall painting there. Yeah, it's a rite of passage. We weren't able to do it in 2015 because it was raining the entire time we were there. And, uh, I mean, the sun came out one morning. We're like, oh, I've got to paint the thing now. And then it started raining again. It's like, ah. So um, we weren't able to do it. And, and yeah, we still made it to Europe without sinking. So it wasn't total bad luck <laughs> not to have done the painting. But we were very happy to have uh, have it have it officially on the wall there. And it, it was fun. My daughters loved doing it. They did sat there for hours and... And, uh, and and did what you know, the obligation the boat had to do. So it was great. So I can so can I go and uh, copy one of your photos and put it on this post from your yeah, website? Yeah, please do. Okay, good. absolutely. I will. All right. Yeah, yeah. Please do. Got to get permission for that, you know. Yeah, you I know you do. I, yeah, supposedly, it. but uh, yeah, anyone's free to use what they want. I have a resources uh, page on there that has some some checklists that I that I have in really, and anyone's free to use that because. My checklist isn't totally original either, so I've gotten ideas from many different different people and put it on my uh, as my checklist. And so again, uh, you get ideas from from different people. And uh, if you're monetize it, let me know. But still, <laughs> if you're going to use it for if I monetize yourself, it, I'll be really happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll be glad yeah. to share the money with you. So. Exactly. Yeah, Franz, if you end up making millions from this podcast, let me know. But uh, I, I'm not going to hold my breath. Yeah, but uh, it could happen though. Yeah, stranger things. So, I guess. yeah. So, uh, so Horta, and then. Um, uh, which, uh, yeah, Fayal was, again, a terrific island. We could do things. Uh, the boat was in pretty good good uh, shape. It, it didn't really need anything. We hadn't really broken anything at that point. You know, we, we saved that for the next portion of the trip. And, uh, and, and it's interesting because the, the, reason, the reason we, um, we had difficulties uh, go back to the, to the yard at, at uh, Sopramar and the installation of a couple key things and, um, and discussions I had there. The, 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 once, we left, once we left Horta, oh, and in Horta, we were joined by our fifth crew member. I shouldn't forget, Andreas. Okay. And Andreas is from, from Spain, right on the border of Spain and Portugal, north part of Portugal, right okay. where it, it kind of cuts into Spain. Uh, he's very, very close. So he could speak, uh, Portuguese and Spanish, which was really great while we were in Horta. He arrived on July 4th and I think he was a little overwhelmed because <laughs> he, he arrives and at the dock and we're two boats in, uh, right next to the Marina office where it is right there. And, uh, I sort of recognize him and I said, Andreas, he comes on board the boat. We have like 20 people that have been drinking all day. <laughs> and, uh, 
and and he was just I think overwhelmed with with just the cheer and the the, the bunting all over the boat and the American flags all over. It was completely obnoxious because everyone had come prepared. You know, I had my red, white, and blue underwear on, and and everyone was. Uh, you know, decked out in, in, in the colors. And, and, uh, and I, <laughs> I don't think he was quite expecting that. And, uh, he was very, very shy, but again, a, a terrific crew member. Uh, he, he's, a he's an, a, an Olympic, uh, a 470 sailor from Portugal and he was in the Olympic circuit and, uh, a, a really a terrific sailor. And and I had I had to calm him down a bit because when things got got a little rough, he just loved pushing the boat. Oh, yeah. He's one of those guys that has to break stuff. (laughs) You know, he hadn't been on a bigger boat before. So and I I think I think he he really thought of of sailing as what you think of sailing is it's cranking along. And so the first good wind we got blowing 2025, he I was off watch. The boat was like on its ear. You know, he, he had the boat heeling over. We were flying through. The crockery was uh, flying around the bottom of the boat. And and uh, I'm rushing up to the cockpit. OK, chill out. OK, let let the sail out. Let's flap the boat out. And and it so it took him a little while to to understand that that that's not a fast that's not driving the boat fast. It's not making the boat go any faster by heeling it over. If anything, it's making the boat go slower. Right. And so and it was a big a, a big shock to him when I, when I demonstrated to him that, okay, well, how fast are we going right now? The boat's healing over by, you know, 30 degrees or something, uh, uncomfortable on my, my boat that it just feels uncomfortable when it's coming down into 40 degrees over. And I said, okay, how fast are we going? So we're going like 6.8 knots. I said, okay, watch this. So I let the sails out, reefed in the jib a little bit, balanced the boat up, uh, boats barely healing over. We're going eight and a half knots. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And if the boat is designed to to sail that way through the water, not especially the boats that have a really large stern as mine does. It, it's not it's not comfortable on that point. The boat just just feels uncomfortable. So flattening out, uh, it, it it gets that sort of semi planing hull that has. I have no forefoot, but the boat is really very shallow forward. And uh, it, it just likes that feel right there. And so uh, and he got it, but he, he just, yeah, but we're just, it doesn't feel like we're going very fast, he said. You know? and, and it's true. And it's always the complaint you get when you get onto a, a bigger boat. The boat might be cranking along, but you just don't feel the same as you do sailing a dinghy. And <laughs> dinghy's a hell of a lot more exciting <laughs> than, a, than a 50-foot boat for that, for that reason. And uh, even though you're going eight or nine knots, it just doesn't feel the same as you're going five knots in a dinghy. So, yeah. and he, uh, and, and anyway, but he, he adapted, boy, he could stand, he could stand at the wheel all day. You know, we did these watch schedules of being on for four hours, uh, during the day. And, uh, he could just, he could just hang in there the entire time. He, he and it would be just on the chart on a chart plotter. It would just, the breadcrumbs would be just straight, a straight line. It was really incredible. You could do a, a compass bearing. I'd say, you know, steer this compass, uh, whatever it would be. Uh, and he would just nail right on it. It was, uh, it was great. So and, were you uh, hand steering it, all the way across or are you using an auto helmet? Oh yeah. So, so that happened. We were having problems when we left the mainland. Uh, just Harry, who's the name of a, everyone names their autopilot, right? right. O- it always has a name, auto, or whatever you're going to call them. 
my autopilot's name is Harry for Harry Helmsley. And, uh, and uh, he was a, a big real estate developer in New York. And a lot of people probably don't know who he is, but he was the original uh, Donald Trump without the attitude. And he, uh, he owned the Empire State Building at one point. And, and uh, he was in the news because uh, he just owned everything and really decent guy, but he had the, uh, the bad luck or, or whatever of marrying uh, a woman named, uh, let's see, uh, Leona. Helmsley, who became famous for leaving, uh, you know, hundred million dollars to her dog or something. I forget what she, she did, but she was a real piece of work, really difficult to work. So, so the helm when it's working fine is called Harry. And when it's not, it's called Leona. So, uh, <laughs> that the, the helm became very much Leona, uh, for, uh, for the trip. It, it, it ended up being, I think my, my Fluxgate compass just went kablooey. I uh, just wasn't doing it. So it, it would go for a little while and then it would all of a sudden veer off and uh, make a 90 degree turn. And uh, the compass printout on the uh, or the, the display of the auto helm uh, was just jerking around and, and wouldn't keep a compass. So I'm suspecting I'm hoping it, it's still a compass. I, I still haven't solved that problem. And I'm hoping it's not the control head or something with the autopilot that's really expensive. So hopefully it's it's just the. Uh, we, we never did solve it, and uh, we just thought it was just too much wind on the first part of the trip. And instead of dealing with it in the Azores, we left uh, Horta thinking, well, it's just a bad wind. But even in 10, 12 knots of wind, Harry would be going along for 15 minutes, all of a sudden, eh, turn the boat, which is which is not what you want. So we ended up hand-steering across the Atlantic. Oh, so okay. We, we steered the entire way. Um, we just gave up on Harry. We, we kept trying to use him every once in a while, kept trying to come up with fixes, seeing if there was any metal near the, uh, the compass, did all the usual things, you know, trying to problem solve everything we possibly could think of. And, uh, we just couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. And, uh, so we ended up, uh, just steering, which ended up not being that bad. I mean, it, it, it sure makes the time fast, uh, pass much quicker when you're hand steering than, than on the auto helm. Sometimes, at least I found that that way. And, and we came up with a with a with a watch schedule that my sister came up with and uh, and and it ended up being being terrific. I mean, it was a it was a great system in which we we each kept um, single watches during the day. And then uh, and I'm going to try to find where I have this because I described it on, on, on the blog because it's a. Uh, and, and we ended up overlapping uh, over the night, uh, at night. So we had the, the single, single, let's see if I can come up with this thing here. I'm going to try to find it here so I can kind of read, read what I wrote. But it, it ended up being, uh, yeah, sing, single, uh, people would stay on uh, single man watches, which was just fine. And then we, um, at night, we would put two people on at night that would rotate on. So someone of a three-hour watch, Someone would be on at two hours and they'd overlap. The second person would overlap uh, each time. So I, I was kind of I, I didn't know how this would work out because you kind of get a camaraderie and you have kind of buddies on night watches, especially and we do back and forth. And whether that change after after an hour of someone coming in, coming out uh, would be distracting or not good. But it ended up being a being a really nice uh, way of of running the watches for five people. Cause remember we had five people aboard. So there was no kind of easy way to, and we didn't have someone dedicated to being a chef and uh, cause we didn't find out about Matias skills till later on. But, 
on previous trips, if we had someone who wanted to do the cooking and the care, then they would be off of watch. So in this case, there would be the fifth person would be just you know going to sleep at night and waking up in the morning and take care of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, uh, which would be great. But we ended up with um, uh, having five people that that we rotated the the cooking and the cooking wasn't that involved. Um, everyone could get their stuff on the, their own, and we um, so we ended up doing this uh, this this odd watch schedule, but ended up uh, working working great. So, and for the life of me, I can't, cannot find it on my blog right here to explain it, but we called it something about the Fink because it was my, my sister had come up with it. her last name is Fink. I think it was called the Fink astral rotation timetable, which was, uh, we called it the fart schedule. And that was basically, uh, what we went through the whole trip calling it. And, uh, and you're on fart tonight, right? Yep. You are. And, <laughs> This is what happens. This is the humor that's funny in the middle of the Atlantic. And uh, and, and we ended up um, doing it the rest of the whole the whole rest of the trip. Uh, it, it worked out perfectly. And um, and, it, and it made it so that the, the night watches became uh, and especially since we were we were steering the boat, uh, we were hand steering the boat. And I think for that reason, uh, you know, one trick at the wheel, when things got difficult, uh, we did half hour tricks at the wheel and otherwise it was one hour on one hour off. And so basically for each night watch, you were basically steering for an hour and then, then it would, ro- you'd rotate off. You'd sit there for two hours. You'd rotate. The next person would come in and it worked out that basically we were just hand steering for one hour in the middle of the night and then four hours during the day. And, and I got into the system of where I could sit. I could do it with my feet. So I would, uh, put one foot on the bottom of the wheel. The other foot would kind of wedge the wheel so it wouldn't move. And then I could sit there and read and just, so my line wasn't quite as straight as an arrow, as opposed to Andreas who would just stand at the wheel the entire time, staring off in the distance, listening to, Oh God, this Euro pop stuff. And, oh, the and, Euro uh, trash music. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and pseudo, <laughs> pseudo opera stuff. I'm not a big opera fan, but he was a big opera fan. So I'd be hearing Puccini or something from the cockpit screaming along and, and he'd blissfully be steering the boat away. It was, it was amazing. It was, so I got to ask you, did you take your French horn with you? Did you practice along the way? <laughs> Hell no. That's why it's a vacation. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I, I have, I brought my mouthpiece. I, I buzzed along before I had to come back, but no, no, I, as a general rule, I try to avoid doing any of that uh, board the boat, trying to get away from it. So <laughs> it, it's a nice break for me not to do it. So yeah. Yeah, okay, so from Horta, where did you go then? Did you go up to any of the other Azores Islands? Yeah, no, that was it. That, that was, was it. The okay. last island we visited, the fourth for the crew, third for the family, and that was going to be our launch-off point for Newport. Okay. And the next destination was Newport. And so now we can talk about strategy. So let's talk uh, about I, winds right now. So so yep, when yep. when uh, when you went across, you got north-northeast winds from, the, uh, from Portugal over to the Azores. Were, yes. Was that what you had pretty much all the way across, or what did you experience? Yeah, no, we didn't. Uh, it, Horta has that high that right. sits usually over, Azorian high it's called. Right. And, and what that really creates is those north winds off the coast of mainland Europe. So usually that distance, be, the, 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 the area between the mainland, especially where we were in Portugal, and the Azores, has a lot of that north wind and it's, and it's kind of nice. It's, it's not too bad. And so we knew that first part of the trip for the mainland to the Azores was going to be pretty good. We weren't going to have to beat against anything. It should have, 
it 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 ended up being a, a sailing trip. We we kind of figured it was going to be a sailing trip, but we really thought that from the Azores to Newport, we were going to we we're going the wrong time of year, going east to west, where most people were going west to east. Right. And, and and we had done the west to east, obviously, in in 2015, and and that was a chunky trip. We well, had, you're you're approaching hurricane season too at that point in time in July. Exactly, that, it, that's exactly right, and and that was our concern. We had a couple concerns. One was, where is the high going to be? Because as you know, the, the highs rotate in a clockwise formation. So if the high is high uh, in the Atlantic, then we'd have nice, beautiful easterly winds that are going to push us across, and 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 instead, uh, if the high goes low in relation to the Azores, then we got problems because when we basically have to keep heading south because we don't want to go north of the high, we're going to be going right against against the wind mm -hmm. and uh, we need to go to the bottom part of the high. So it all had to do with where the high was. And it's kind of, it's interesting because as I'm going through all these thoughts and going through all the things and decide, kind of deciding what we're going to do, leaving Horta, I, a friend of mine calls and, and he, he sends me a text and says, I think John Kretschmer is there. In, 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 and he's a friend of John's, and I had met John once before, and, and, and John's a, a very well-known sailor, and a lot of your listeners are going to know who he is. Um, he's written a lot of these terrific books. Actually, one just came out. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. Terrific writer. He's, he's sailed hundreds of thousands of miles, and he does these crew training cruises aboard his boat. Questus, I think, is his name of his boat, and Quitzel, I think, is the name of the boat, and he— um, and so my pal Ed says, uh, I think John's there. And, and I'm like, oh, OK, I, I don't know if he's there. And that's why I look around the docks a little bit. I, I can't see him. I'm down fixing the head on my boat, which is another thing that, that kind of went kablooey. And um, um, I hear this voice out the window and he's he's describing my bow, my uh, the uh, the anchor uh, setup I have on my boat. <laughs> and, and I hear that voice. I'm going, God, that sounds like John Kretschmer. So I look out the window and go, Kretschmer. He goes, oh, hey. And I, I come across and I said, I said who I was and my connection. And we only met briefly before. And and it was it was bizarre. Of all people to run into, uh, vastly experienced uh, person. He goes, oh, you're heading east? And I said, no, I'm heading west. He goes, oh, really? Okay, how, what's your plan? And so so we we talked. And so I had his, his, his input. And and basically, his input was was pretty much what I knew already, which was watch the high, you know, watch the high. And I had been watching it the past few days, and the high literally stretched two thousand miles across the Atlantic. Right. The high and, was. And does it shift perfect. very fast? It was perfectly placed for doing that that, that railroad uh, I thirty five, I called it, going basically across the thirty fifth uh, latitude, all the way across. It was perfect. And then the day before we're leaving. As I'm talking to John, this is the day before. He goes, "Now the highs disappeared." I said, "What?" So I I checked it, and sure enough, it it basically just disappeared and moved up to the northwest of <coughs> of uh, of Horta. Now that's pretty good still, okay. But then it was moving south, and the forecast was it was going to keep moving south. And uh, so he said, "Well, you you basically just do one thing, and that that's basically you just you're going to follow the high and and keep going as far south as you have to go." to keep the, the wind direction coming from the east. And and that's basically you're going to be your plan. And that was pretty much going to be my plan anyway. And and uh, he said, good luck. <laughs> I hope this works out. <laughs> he was heading east to, to, to mainland Europe. 
And uh, so we took off. That was basically the plan. It wasn't wasn't rocket science at that point. I mean, we weren't uh, the, the weather routing on predict wind said for us to go north, go north. You know, and and no, 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 we didn't. We we just kept uh, kept basically staying in the wind, and then <laughs> getting the updates and and the satellite uh, pictures and the descriptions we got from predict wind of where the high was, and we just try to ke- keep in that wind band of you know fifteen to twenty. 15 to 25. And, uh, it pushed us South. It pushed us far South. And we realized that we, John said, we would probably have to go down to the, maybe the latitude of Bermuda. And, uh, and, and that's basically, you know, Horta's sitting at it. If I remember like 38 mm-hmm. in terms of uh, North latitude and Bermuda's at 32. And so the difference of six degrees, you know, it's a little less than 400 miles, uh, you know, 360 miles south. Mm-hmm. Now that's not going the direction we want to go, but we figured that we might have to do that. And so we didn't, we gave it up grudgingly as we were, we were heading west. So the plan was to head west as much as we, as fast as we could in the best wind we could and try not to go as far south as we have to, but go south if we have to, you know, don't, don't be stupid about it. Don't, don't keep north and then get into the doldrums or get into that terrible, center section of the high right there where there was no wind. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we did, we, we, we went South, we kept going South, kept going South, but we kept going West and West, South, Southwest, Southwest, Southwest. And, uh, it worked out perfectly. I mean, we went further South and we, we, we wanted to, but we ended up around 32 degrees about at Bermuda's latitude where we bottomed out. And then we started just sort of heading Northwest, kept testing it a little bit. And then we put a rum line right to Newport and, um, and we sailed back up. And, and as I said before, we, we sailed the entire way and except for the, uh, for one squall we got involved in, in which, which, uh, has happened to me a couple times before, but hadn't happened to the rest of the crew. And my sister was steering at the time and, and uh, woke me up with, well, I, I kind of woke up cause as you know, you, you get really comfortable with your boat and, and anytime something felt different, uh, I would always wake up and, and something felt different. The boat wasn't moving. It would just stopped. And, uh, we were in this kind of, uh, just, a, a system that the squall had come through, but the squall kind of stopped all around us. And it was, we could see on the radar, it was pelting all around us, but in the center, there was absolutely no wind, no rain, no nothing. It was, a uh, like in the being in the center of a, of a, of a tornado or, or the eye of a storm, but a very micro storm. And the boat was just drifting and it caused the, the, the compass was drifting around. The chart plotter was spinning in circles because it wasn't getting a GPS fix because you weren't moving in a direction. And, uh, and, and so, and my sister was like, we're just, we're just turning around. I, I, I can't, there are no, and the wind, uh, the, the sails were, were flapping around and, it was like a very surreal thing. We had been in 20 knots of wind and gone through the squall, and all of a sudden there was nothing. And uh, and she, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And so we were kind of floating around for a little while, and we were floating in the direction with the squall. So it's kind of the squall picked us up, and I was just kind of like, just just uh, hurting us further north. And slowly over 10, 15 minutes, we were just staying in the. And I said, well, let's start the engine. Let's get out of here. So we started the engine and just plowed through the wall of the, of the, of the, uh, squall right there. I mean, all the sails were down at that point 
And, uh, but it was, it was like a little surreal, like twilight zone kind of moment. And, and, and if I hadn't been through it before, uh, I would have been a little more concerned about it, but my, my sister was sort of, and Andres and Mattia were kind of freaked out by it. You know, it's like, what's happening? What's happening? Are we going to be boarded by aliens or something? I had to, <laughs> it's a very, very weird feel to the whole thing. It was kind of cool. Another great, cool experience, but I kind of knew what was happening. My uncle had an inkling too. And, and so we, we motored out of that. So we motored about a mile and then we got out of that and we were back in the wind again and back on our way. And it was, and of course it was at night. So, so all those things always happen at night. So it couldn't see anything. I, I should have probably said that. Yeah. It was in the middle of the night. There was no, you couldn't see anything around you at all. And, and so it was a, a kind of a surreal moment, but we, we motored out of that. So we did use the motor for that. And of course for my dumb Dan drone drama, we, uh, we had to go back for that. We turned the motor on, but for, for, propelling our, ourselves down the road on the trip, uh, we hadn't really used the engine at all. We'd used the generator to to get the batteries back up, but the solar worked great also for that. And since we weren't using the auto helm, uh, there was that power hog out of the mix. And and generally on a long trip like that, the auto helm's the big the big thing. It uses a lot of lot of power and our refrigeration is the next big big uh, ticket item. The chart plotter, we generally turn it off, uh, especially out in the ocean. You know, it's, it's not needed. I don't, right. We don't know where, you know, there's nothing we're going to, we're going to run into that we can see on a chart plotter. And, uh, and so the, yeah, there was a real pleasure in the middle of the night. If the, if the, the stars were out, which only happened a couple times because we had a moon that really washed out the things, but it, say the moon's up and you're, you're sailing along and the moon tended to be, off the uh, port beam. And so I could sit back with my feet steering the wheel, turn all the chart plotter, all the instruments off. And uh, the little compass red light would be on. I could steer by the compass and I even could turn that off because I would just watch the moon. And I kept the moon right at the bimini, right where the bimini met the, uh, you know, the stays on the side. I could just keep it right there, right in between the shroud and the, and the bimini. And if I just kept it there, I was right on course. And it was like you were floating across the earth. It was, it's the best. I mean, that's, that's the stuff that keeps me coming back to, to, to that kind of thing, that ocean travel that I really like, which you can get that coastal. You, you can, there are moments and nights like that, but it, it, there's a different feeling to you when you're a thousand miles away from land and, um, it, and having that for, for days on end, it's, it, it's fun. It was, it was really terrific that way. And, um, so we, we used little power. And we didn't really need to run the generator that often. And uh, anyway, it was. So, uh, so let's talk about good. food. What, what did you keep your refrigerator <laughs> stocked up? What did you do? Yep. We loaded the freezer with a bunch of, uh, we, we did our provisioning in, uh, in, 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 uh, where do we do that? Don't we do, oh, Lagos. We did, the, yeah, in Lagos, we did that. They had a giant um, uh, supermarket. That we, our boat was moved. The marina said, "I'm sorry, we have to move your boat because this this spot's being taken by someone. We need to move you over to where the big boats are on the other side." I said, "Okay." So they moved us over there. We were the tiniest boat in this dock of giant boats, and uh, but a uh, one block away was the biggest supermarket. So so literally, we took the cart from the supermarket and took it right back to the boat. It was couldn't have been better. So we realized that that was our moment. So yeah, we filled. We I have a pretty good sized freezer, and uh, and uh, just. A, you know, fairly small refrigerator, but we loaded the freezer completely with, 
various frozen items that we could find there. Uh, breakfast was pretty much cereal, mm-hmm. and we took a lot of that that uh, that um, the milk that you can keep out the, mm-hmm. the high the temperature ultra high temp- milk. Ultra high. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. I mean, we we I still have it aboard the boat. It um it lasted lasts forever, and it tastes great. And and we had boxes and boxes of it. We we stored in a boat. We we stored about. Let's see. One of the things I, I'm pretty adamant about is being hydrated on these trips. Mm-hmm. And and what ends up happening is, a, a, you know, a lot of the crew gets dehydrated because you just, you just don't drink as much water as you really should uh, sailing in the ocean. So we um, we bought uh, one and a half liter uh, bottles of water to consume. And so which is perfect because that's about what you should drink every day. And so we just got into the system of of every crew member putting their name and the day number on the, on the thing with a, with a, you know, magic marker. And, and it was, it was great. So every day you just drank your bottle. And of course my sister, who we ended up calling the smother on the trip, she's not just a mother. She was a smother because she, uh, she would, she require everybody to, to make sure you drink all the water and she check all their bottles and make sure that we, we had been consuming everything we were supposed to consume and, and Andreas would like fall behind and she would make him, you know, chunk the entire two liters or something. He was behind and, uh, became very serious about it, but it, it was, it was great. It was exactly what we needed. And, uh, so we had needed five bottles a day for what ended up being. So we, we had almost 200 bottles of this stowed around the boat all over the place and, uh, able to, you know, hydrate ourselves, but it was a great system for doing it. And we got, we were able to, to, uh, keep hydrated through the, through the whole remainder of the trip. And the provisioning was really easy there. And, uh, so frozen food, uh, a lot of rice, which, uh, uh, which Mattia loved cause you could uh, mix the vegetables with it. We'd have these uh, different meals. Uh, we caught two fish <laughs> that's, that's it. Actually we caught three and there's a, there's a thing you can read on the, on the blog. I'm not going to talk too much about it, but we certainly got a big competition with, uh, between the the, uh, the two, what ended up being two teams, and Andrea stayed out of it, but we had uh, Uncle Pete and myself called. Uh, I think it was called uh, uh, Dan. No, oh, no, no. I'm sorry. It was it was Mattia and myself. Because so there's Matt, Dan was one of the teams, and then uh, Pete and and Lori were the other thing. And they Patari, they say, and they changed their name through the whole thing. But we had uh, fishing became like a the big competition and Lori had caught an early fish. She was the first one to catch a fish, but I deemed it too small and she had to throw it away, put it back in. So she put it back in the course. And then the next fish we catch is, you know, a little bit bigger, but we kept that one. That was on our team. And so there was a lot of uh, trash talk going back and forth between the, uh, the fishing tournament teams. And, uh, we ended up catching a tuna and a mahi mahi. And, uh, and so Matia was thrilled about that. And we were able to, you know, eat that. But pretty much it was, it was the frozen food we had. It was the rice. It was the cereal in the morning. We took, uh, you know, cold cuts with us for, for the, the lunches, but you know, we didn't, we didn't eat that much. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, you know, at, at sea, I find I always lose weight. I always come back you know, 10 pounds lighter, uh, going there. And I'm not that, 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 that big, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm six, three, but I generally weigh about 190 pounds or so. And, uh, I weighed about 180 when I get back from these things. Cause you're just, you're active, you're moving around, um, uh, the food's enough to, to keep you going. And I'm not a real foodie either. I, I, 
generally eat it for for fuel more than anything else. But uh, but there were foodies aboard. Believe me, my uncle likes his food. And certainly, my uh, certainly Mattia was was the frozen food was not something he enjoyed. He did not not want that necessarily, and. So, yeah, that, that got us across. And I think our entire provisioning bill in Portugal, and remember, this is Portugal, was like $350 for loading the boat up with everything. It, it, was, it was so inexpensive in, in Portugal. And we had the food the entire trip. I mean, obviously, when we got to the Azores, we didn't need the provisioning stuff aboard the boat, even though Matias stayed on the boat uh, a few days and ate some of the food. But uh, we still had food when we arrived in Newport on the boat. And, uh, obviously the fresh food was gone, uh, fresh vegetables and everything we loaded up on in Horta was gone, but, um, that only lasts a few days as it is. And you have to rely on the other stuff, but it was, uh, yeah, we're, we're not too strict when it comes to the provisioning. I don't have a, I don't have a list that I use each time. It, it's more, uh, before we go, it's like, what do you like? What do you like? And, and getting things from each crew member. So I, I don't have really staples, that I have, except for the Chips Ahoy cookies that we have to have at night watches. And uh, the Oreos went in there a little bit, but the Chips Ahoy we have to have. So, you know, all over Europe, I was able to find Chips Ahoy cookies. Now, if you've had Chips Ahoy cookies, they, they really are terrible. They're, they're really not that good a chocolate chip cookie. But, you know, it's 3 a.m. and you're in the Atlantic and you have your foul weather gear on and it's cold. Uh, Chips Ahoy really starts to be very appealing. And I, I like my, my chips Ahoy. It just became a tradition more than anything else. And so, uh, Oh, and speaking of uh, foul weather gear. So, so speaking of foul weather gear, what were you saying? Oh, speaking of foul weather gear. Yeah. From the, from the West to the East across the Atlantic, we, um, we were frequently bundled up, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've had this, this thing I've said to all the crews when we've gone off crew uh, offshore, I mean, trips to Nova Scotia and Bermuda a couple of times, that, you know, when you get offshore in the Atlantic, it's cold. It's it's deceptively cold. It's not what you expect. You could be in August. It could be 90 degrees on shore. And you get offshore, and, and it, it's not just that it's cold. It's just a difference in temperature from 90 degrees on shore to 60 or whatever it is out in the ocean. It just feels colder. The, the water does not change temperatures as as quickly as land does. So uh, the, the Atlantic always seems, or oceans always seem to be a little cooler. And so from the west to the east, we were frequently bundled in our foul weather gear and, you know, uh, you know long underwear and a sweater and, and whatever, and fleece and, and the foul weather gear and all bundled up and gloves. And uh, it, it seemed kind of so I was I had everyone prepared. You know, this is it's going to be it's going to be cold. It's really going to be cold. Everyone's going to get, get used to that. <laughs> it wasn't cold. It wasn't cold at all. Now, perhaps we went a lot further south than we did, but we went to Bermuda last time. So, and we left from Bermuda and went northeast to the Azores. This time we left the Azores, went south, and then went northwest to the U.S. But it, 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 we didn't put our foul weather gear on, I think, once, except for the, so the rain. I mean, we'd, we'd put the top on when it got, you know, through these squalls or whatever, uh, you know, spritzing that you'd, you'd get in wind. But in terms of cold, I don't think we, uh, I don't think we wore fleece very much at all. So it was, uh, it was different. It was a different experience than we've had before. And speaking of different, different experiences, uh, we didn't see any boats. We saw a boat when we left the Azores 
and about a day out and and they had been 24 days from Bermuda wow. 24 days from Bermuda and it, the boat was maybe a 40 footer and they were sailing and it was a couple and uh, you know we saw them in the distance we called them up on the radar okay I called them up on the, the radio and said uh, you know you know who are you where are you where are you coming from and they they uh, basically said they were 24 days out of Bermuda which seemed crazy to us that was yeah. a long time and they still had two days to go to get to the Azores and you really tell, I can hear in the background, uh, his, his wife or his partner saying, better get a damn shower soon. She could hear in the background. They were, they were ready to get off the boat, you know, get off the boat. I'm sure he said, yeah, it's a two week sail and we'll be there in a couple of weeks. And now it's 24 well, they, days. And they, they had uh, some really light weather. What was it? It was just, they a... had no wind. Oh, they okay. said the grip was just, awful they were just getting into the wind because we were sailing and they were sailing and they uh, and, and i said you should have wind all the way to the azores at this point but they said they would they hadn't had any wind and they had gone north to try to find wind they, they were moving around trying to trying to find the wind and i don't know whether they had the access to weather or not uh at the same as we did but uh they weren't the only ones because we we talked to um to another, when we got close to the U.S., um, we had talked to a to a boat who had, who was looking at the the weather forecast for that part north where they were going and said the winds were just you know wrong, and so they were probably wrong for the west to east, but they were nice for us going east to west. I mean the plan worked; we were in the wind the whole time. We just, we just lucked out; it, it worked out where the high is. And as I said before, the high can be many different places. I mean, it's called the Azorian high, but it, it fluctuates around. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, our, our entire trip from the Azores to Newport, we did in 18 days. So, and during 18 days, we went about 2,400 miles total, 2470, you know, less than 2,500 miles to get there. And the rum lines probably closer to 200, 2000, I'm sorry. So, mm -hmm. so, uh, we used about 400 miles going south out of our way, but we were always going west. We never went due south, and uh, we were always and, heading. And it sounds like you west. were comfortable all the way across, too. Yeah, we were. I mean, we had we had little adventure moments of uh, more wind than we expected, or you know, two squalls that came through. And but we're kind of used to that at this point. I mean, you kind of. You just adapt to them. Having radar is a huge asset for that. You can see it coming. Uh, you see the condition, especially if you had a forecast there was going to be wind. Uh, we had one night of lightning, and, and I, I probably said it before to you in the past. Uh, boy, I, I do not like lightning. I, I have no issue with heavy wind. I have no issue with seas of some sort. Uh, they don't – obviously, I'm, I'm concerned about them, and I you know, think about them, and uh, uh, lightning is something that just unnerves me at a at a cellular level. It's just I I don't like uh, the idea of going into it or seeing it anywhere near me. And um, because we ha I have a checklist for lightning that I that what, what is your what book. is your checklist yeah. for lightning? What do you do for lightning? I don't know. I have to go to my website and and, and look it up. What I do for lightning, but pretty much I I take the the portable. VHF radios that I have, and I have, you know, three or four of them. I take my little uh, GPS, uh, Garmin GPS, handheld GPS. I take that, I wrap that in aluminum foil, I stick that in the oven. Okay, you know? okay. I 
I put that in the oven. It makes a little Faraday cage, uh-huh. supposedly, right. that would keep away anything that happens. Uh, you know, I unplug everything I can unplug that's on the boat. But, you know, the electronic system's pretty wired in. There's not much you can really right. really do in terms of that. Uh, I put the uh, sailings on auto helm. You're not to touch the wheel. And and especially if the lightning's all around the boat, then, then just hopefully have the auto helm steering the boat that you're not holding onto a metal wheel that's connected by a metal chain to a to a metal rudder so and um trying to keep uh you know away from anything you're not going to go up and hug the mast at that moment probably wouldn't be a good idea so uh, just avoid it i mean i've only i've only smelled that that terrible smell you you smell with a lightning strike happens only a couple times but it's enough to unnerve me that there's really not much you can do about it and uh and from what all i've been told the the uh, the lightning prevention stuff they put on boats is a complete uh, you know waste of money because the, the voltages are so enormously high in a lightning strike that no matter what wire you send down your mast or any lightning rod that your mast becomes or any grounding plate you're going to have it's going to blow the bottom of your boat out you know it's not going to route that amount of power through whatever in- infrastructure you have to have at least that's how it was explained to me yeah, by a scientist who said that at a, at one of these um, conferences, and 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 he was saying, listen, you know, it's it's a matter of just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and uh, it's going to hit, it's going to come down, and and if you're at that spot, you're going to get hit. So, and that's been proven over the years as I've gone through uh, these storms, not voluntarily. I mean, I'll go way out of my way. I mean, you see, I see it in the distance, and that happened uh, in in the Med uh, summer before last in which we could see it. There were lightning all around. And I, I just turned the boat 90 degrees and sailed off in a different direction, trying to figure out where the clouds were going. And the clouds were going then towards us. And I turned it 180, went 90 degrees the other way. And uh, and it just, I'll go around it. It takes me a couple hours. I'm not going to voluntarily sail into it. And it's just, I, I think it's foolhardy to do because, uh, but having been caught up in it uh, off of Maine, I remember one time there was, there was a lightning, which is sort of unusual, I think, but um, it was it was bursting lightning all around, and I could have that that smell that you, mm-hmm. you could smell that sulfur smell or whatever of lightning or whatever it is, um, uh, and it just it happened right next to the boat, just came down and and made a connection. Damn, I saw the whole thing lit up everything, blinded you, but it didn't hit us, and so I, I don't necessarily think I don't the, the mast attracts it. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I just don't want to find out. So yeah, lightning's been one of my uh, things that I don't, you know, not crazy about. So we, we saw that a little bit, but not, not too much. Um, and that was, that was only one night and uh, continued across, but it was squalls, uh, things we could see on the radar. Uh, you can certainly see fronts on the radar, any bad weather coming up, we would put the radar on and, and check it out. But if everything was beautiful that day, the radar would be off. It, it takes a lot of power. So got rid of that. And we'd basically just be steering to a compass setting, which is basically all, all we were doing. You know, so someone cup off on watch and we're steering, you know, 270, go for it. And, uh, and just do your four hour watch steering to a, to a compass. So did you have your, uh, was it, is it AIS? Your, your, yeah. Was yeah. it on all the we time? The, yes, we did. The, that's, that's, that, that's a good point, Franz. I love my AIS. And I, I have this watchmate uh, AIS, which is a standalone. 
which is really great too, because like, you can turn the tarp plotter off, turn everything off, but I keep this in. It uses minuscule amount of power. You know, it's just it's just a, a, a gray display. And, um, and what, what's it, it the brand again? The, what's the brand? I'm sorry? What's the brand again? It's Watchmate. 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 Okay. All yeah, right. Watchmate. I think it's a New Zealand company. Okay. And um, it, 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 it's terrific. It, it's a, it, it stands alone, but it also exports the data to my chart plotter or anything else. And um, so, but if I turn a chart plotter, I can just use the Watchmate that kind of just sits there. And I can turn the display down if I don't want to use any power, but it uses so little power. But we, yeah, we had that running all the time. And uh, that's where we, we picked up that other boat. And we picked up one ship the entire time in 18 days. Mm. We saw uh, one of these big, you know, thousand foot cargo vessels that, that came uh, within two miles of us. But we knew that 25 miles out. I mean, the AIS, you don't see the ship uh, because it's line of sight, but it's line of sight from the top of our mast, which is 65 feet up, to the top of the mast of the ship, which is, I don't know, how, how high are those cargo ships? I mean, 100 feet? Uh, 150 feet high and uh so it, it we can see it way over the horizon and uh so the ship might be 25 miles away and our antennas antennas are seeing each other and um so we know it's coming and the AAS yeah we, we talked about this before Franz the, the AAS is a is a game changer in so many ways as long as people have them but they it, it just makes it a, those those night situations in the fog uh, a lot more, uh, uh, a lot more doable, and uh, and we just I, I described that before last year, the last our last podcast I talked about uh, going through uh, the Strait of Gibraltar, and doing it at night, and uh, the AIS and knowing every single ship that was ahead of us and plotting where they were and going through, it was it was a piece of cake. I mean we had good visibility, we had decent wind, and we had we could see every ship on the AIS and. I would never have done it without the AIS. And uh, and we had radar. We could see the ships. But, you know, radar it can be confusing at times. Uh, it can, you know, is that, are we closing on that? Is it closing on us? Is it is it a, is it a buoy that's, that's, that's stationary? Is it, you know, you're not sure. Where the AIS gives you exactly what the ship is, how close it's going to be to you, the closest point of approach, when that closest point of approach will be. It's a, it's a great asset to have aboard. So, yeah, we ran that the entire time. And had that in the background, and and it and it blipped once for the, the for that boat two days out, and it blipped for the ship. Uh, I don't know when it was in. As we're closing on the east coast, and uh, we weren't in a typical uh, traffic pattern for ships going across the Atlantic where we were, and um, yeah, it went, we had our VHF radio on the entire time. That was one thing. You know, by law you have to have channel 16 on, and so we had it on, and and it, as we uh, came towards the U.S. coast, all of a sudden we heard this thing. And it was like, and we heard this, and everyone was like, what the hell is that? And I said, oh, those are voices. <laughs> we were hearing voices come out of the VHF that we hadn't heard for 16 days. And uh, so it was it was kind of funny. The uh, It had been sitting in the background on the entire time, not making a sound. And all of a sudden it came alive after 16 days. With uh, with you know traffic, and as we got closer to Dantucket, there was uh, the radio was alive, alive with people talking. So, all right. So you got back to you about got back to Nantucket. What was the what well, was the yeah? Well, we yeah Nantucket was yeah. I had I kind of screwed up. I I I really wanted to sail, uh, and I really wanted to sail the whole way. Uh -huh. So 
the wind started really heading us and 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 we 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 were turning north uh you know when we made the southern part maybe 800 miles before the coast we started turning northwest and we were in the wind in the wind in the wind but the uh, the wind started started coming uh, uh you know clocking around to a point where we couldn't keep it without heading further north and so we were heading further north as we got close to the coast and i got myself into a bit of a pickle because we were east of nantucket and all the shoals that are there and all of a sudden i'm looking at the chart i'm like oh damn it there's like you know three feet uh, and and so we had to uh we had to jive the boat around but we we ended up turning the engine on i i had to to finally suck it up and and admit that that we're gonna we're gonna have to to drive the engine and we um so we took the sails down, we drove around, and at that point, this pea soup fog had come, come, you know, our way, and we literally couldn't see anything in front of the boat at all. So fog, which was really cool for, for for Mattia and Andreas, they had never seen fog before, they had just they had never experienced it. It's it's not a typical thing. I mean, have you seen much fog in the in the med? Front? Not in the med. Uh, in the northwest, we saw it all the time, but not in the med. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Met is just not something that they, I mean, they have some some terrible hellacious winds and squalls and all sorts of stuff and water spouts and all those other creepy things, but but they don't have fog. We never really saw it. And uh, so for them, Matia and Andreas, they were they thought it's the coolest thing. Went out the bow and they're like, wow, you can feel it. You know, it's like, and, uh, and they were on lookout because uh, we're going through things and not all the fishermen have AIS and not all the fishermen you know, you can see them. And, and, uh, so we were running the radar through that whole thing. And I, the boat was fairly going fairly slow. I was going about six knots under, under motor and just kind of working our way around the shoals. And, and yeah, and then we, we just went in, we went in between, uh, Martha's vineyard, uh, block Island, brought the channel right into, uh, right into, uh, Newport. And it was, a. Uh, it was, it was easy at that point. We sailed a little bit more as we were closing in on Newport and then the wind really picked up as we were going to Newport. So we got to really basically sail right past the fort, uh, right into the Harbor. And, and then we finally doused the sails and, and that's when the fun began with, uh, began with, uh, <laughs> the, bu- the border and yeah. customs, which we really did not expect. Yeah. And, uh, and, and they, yeah, they demanded that we come to the, to the dock that was there and they said, well, where do you want to be? And where do you want us? I kept saying, and they, they were, I mean, we'll come anywhere you want. And they were like, well, where are you going to be? Are you going to be in the marina? And so I guess part of the gist of them being upset was that I wasn't coming into the marina there. I was picking up a mooring. I was, I was, we needed fuel. So, so I said, well, we need fuel. So we'll pull up to the fuel dock and we do it there. And, and they said, okay. So we pulled up to the fuel dock and we got fuel. We waited for them. They finally arrived there but they were kind of perturbed. They said, and then they said again, why, why aren't you in the marina? We usually do this in the marina. And I said, well, we're not going into the marina. We're going on a mooring. And, and, and actually, we had, their mooring was like 100 feet away, right there next to the fuel dock. And so, but they weren't going to, I said, we could pick you up in the dinghy if you want, which would have been hilarious considering the size of one of the guys. So, and it was tough enough for him to get up to the boat when it was right next to the dock. So uh, I, I think we started off on the wrong foot by, by not, you know, doing the rules that we were supposed to go into a marina that was right there, and and that was the first I heard of that. But uh, listen, we I got two duds in terms of the guys. I've had past experience with the border customs, and they've been nothing but polite, always the whole time. They've been totally polite, 
And uh, yeah, about I remember five years ago with, uh, when we were coming back from Canada, the woman that I spoke to on the phone said, said, you know what? It, it, you'll be fine in Newport. It, if we, we check in on you or not, I, I think we have you on our database, but um, just give me a call when you've entered in a Newport call. And they were like, fine. You know, it, it was, uh, I, I think they've just gotten stricter all the way along, as we know. So, so pretty soon there'll be a wall between us and Canada. So. Yeah. So is that where your boat is? Where is your boat? Is that your home port? No. So the home port is in Stamford. Okay. So then we, uh, so we, we went to Newport. We go to a, we spent a lot, we spent a lot of time in Newport. It's, okay. it's a great town. It's a great sailing town. Mm-hmm. And we, um, you know, we went and ate our traditional meal at Benjamin's, you know, had our breakfast and, and had our meal and looked around Newport. Of course, for the, for the guys, who hadn't been there, Mattia and Andreas, this is their first experience of the United States and getting them past the, the two jerks that we dealt with, with uh, border and customs. We wanted them yeah, come on, you got to check out Newport. This is where it's all at. You know? So they, they, when they walked the, the walk and saw the Vanderbilt mansions and then they, they walked Thames street and, and saw the shops there. And, the, and, and then they got to see, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the school of, um, John, oh, the re- restoration school that's there, International Yacht Restoration School, Iris, mm-hmm. that is uh, redoing the Coronet, which is like a 140 foot wood boat, and it's it's a spectacular school for learning the arts of building boats, and uh, and they just built a, a new building with uh, the systems and electronics and everything like that. It's a it's a fantastic school and a great place to go around, and and they do beetle cats there to raise money, and so it's a real it's a real crafts. Uh, craftsman place to, to study uh, the boat arts. And um, so the, the guys love doing, seeing that and, and Newport and then the bar scene on the, they disappeared for a whole night as they, they bar crawled the docks there and <laughs> came back. So I think we spent two nights there and then we, we headed back to Stanford and uh, to uh, luckily I got a, a place in, in my Marina that I had left three years before and uh, pulled into this spot right next to where I had been for years and um, hopefully I'll be able to be there in the spring. And now the boat's hauled out. Okay, so, uh, so it's out of the water then, huh? That's it. Yeah, end of story. It was a, it was a wonderful summer. It was a, <laughs> I recommend it to anyone. And uh, it, was, uh, it was great. It, it, it did not, uh, you know, I wanted, I remember running, running a marathon one time, and I said after I finished the marathon, I will never, ever do this again, ever. It was like a worst experience. But, you know, sailing across the Atlantic once, I was like, ah, you know, that was great. I can do this again. And going across this time, we got whacked a couple of times, but it wasn't, you know, it was, it was, it was fun. It was great. And I could absolutely see doing it again. And it's, uh, I can see how people get addicted to it because, yeah, there's certain people like Kretschmer and stuff that have been across the Atlantic, I don't know, 30 or 40 times it's been across. And, uh, and it's not just because he, he's doing it for business. That's part of it. But I, I think he just has that, that yen for it. And, uh, you know, you got to love it anyway. So, well, let me ask so where that's you, that, where, where do you live and how long does it take you to get to your boat? I, I live in Stanford. Oh, so you and, live right and, in Stanford. Okay. Yeah. I live in the same town. So it takes me 15 minutes to okay. get to the boat. Well, it's going to yeah. be easy to yeah, get on your boat and go minutes. sailing for an afternoon then. <laughs> yeah. But boy, you know, <laughs> I, I don't like doing that. <laughs> I really, I, I have a difficult time with that. Yeah, we, we've done that a couple, you know, you have friends and, you know, take them out on the boat for a little sail around the harbor and back. Oh, God, I hate it. It's just <laughs> it's uh, a lot of work for uh, a little it, pleasure, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's it's 
I, I like the voyaging aspect of it. I, I really do. And and so and for me, it, it that requires a couple months to to do something like that. Uh, a weekend, yeah. But I, I need to have a destination. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's just me. Everyone's wired differently, Franz. Everyone's wired differently. Some some people like the you go out, sail in a circle, and come back. I, I have a couple friends, and they they don't do overnights. They don't do. Uh, they don't like that aspect of, they love just going out and sailing around the buoys or sailing around. And, and it's great. It's my father was one of them for years. I mean, he, he was a small boat national champ, four time national champion. And, uh, he loved that whole, that whole thing of just going out and sailing around. And, uh, it, it, I'm not wired that way. It's just, uh, it, it's not that pleasurable for me to, to go out. But if I have a destination, even if it's just sailing across Long Island Sound to, yeah, you know, Port Jeff or going into, uh, you know, there are numerous places on the North Shore of Long Island to go. Uh, that that gets my juices flowing. Then I'm like, OK, yeah, OK, ha, yeah, it's a voyage. You know, it's, it's a three hour voyage. So I can go. Uh, I, I, I have a destination. So, OK, one last question. Wants. One last question. What sure. repairs do you, did, do you have to do on your boat uh, or did you have to do on your boat once you got back? Yeah, I um Probably the the biggest thing are various halyards that I lost because uh, once again, uh, the spinnaker spinnaker halyard it wasn't the halyard that broke it was the block at the top of the halyard uh, uh-huh. at top of the mast uh-huh. it's it an external block that holds the uh, halyard right and uh, that came off when I had uh, Andres and and uh, Mattia were watching uh, dolphins on the bow and I heard this bang and uh, this block which could have been them on the head block comes flying that sail comes flying down into the water onto the deck onto the water and and we i expected it was something that happened before because on, on the 2015 i had lost a, a halyard and it had had been chafe chafe had gone through at the top because i had stupidly not changed it for a day and the spinnaker was up for an entire day and i hadn't moved it you should move the the uh, halyard just a little bit a few inches here mm-hmm. and there so it just doesn't wear across the ship at the top of the mast and um, so I, I assumed, even though I had been standing orders each watch, we had been adjusting the halyard uh, out a little bit, but the entire block broke off and came down. So that has to be replaced. And the the, the halyard on the other side that I had, had worn through in the med the other summer, uh, the same way has to be replaced. So some, some stuff at the top of the mast. Uh, the wind instrument isn't working very well. Uh, some Something hit the, the top. So we weren't getting perfect readings all the time it had a little wobble to it and i think we might have had a bird strike at some point something hit it up there so i have to replace that um and the wind instrument itself is uh you know little things like this and nothing major okay went wrong i mean the boat was pretty i think it was prepped pretty well uh the engine worked fine the the sails were fine the the the, the rigging was all all good i had i had these uh a rigging company in Portugal, these uh, Brits came came to the boat, four of them, and they went through the, the entire rig. They did the whole rigging thing. They tuned it. They uh, crawled up, went up the mast, looked at every single uh, thing, die tested, all the fittings and everything. Because my, my rig's original mm-hmm. from, a, from a 2004. Uh, that's 14 years. And I really wanted to check. They said, no, this stuff looks great. It feels looks good. So uh, with that in mind, I... You know, I'll probably be dealing with that next couple of years. But damage to the boat, um, I'm, I'm trying trying to rack my 
my mind, I have a, a list of things I'm going to, I'm going to do aboard the boat, but a lot of that's just maintenance things, okay. uh, you know, getting the boat funk out of the, the cushions and, and, uh, you know, cleaning everything inside the boat. And, uh, there was a lot of, uh, there were oil spills in my tool room, the forward, uh, cabin became a tool room where I kept all my spare parts. And, and you, as you know, you, you, you keep a lot of spare parts, parts aboard a boat, especially in a transatlantic voyage because you don't know what's going to go wrong and and i've taken all those off but it, you know the oil leaked i had uh, five gallons of oil that i brought with me just in case and one of them cracked open and went over everything so it was an unholy mess in the whole whole beginning of the boat so a lot of that's just cleaning the boat stripping everything off the boat that i possibly can over the winter bring it all back to my the house and garage and it just clean the boat from stem to stern and, uh, but in terms of systems, uh, everything seemed to work as soon as far as damage to the boat, really nothing. The, the biggest thing is probably the halyards and the auto helm, figuring okay. out the auto helm. And I'm hoping it's a simple problem of just replacing the flux gate compass, but, uh, having, having auto helm, uh, you know, ironically, I'm going to want it for my coastal stuff, right. Almost more than the ocean stuff. It's just, uh, and especially since when the family's aboard, I, I tend to, to to do most of now that the kids are older they they can steer and do everything to them but it, it i pretty much sold the boat and uh and i like it that way but without an auto helm <laughs> yeah. it's going to turn yeah, into a real hard. drudgery yeah. and um and and i think it's safer especially with some of the coastal stuff because you can you can look around a lot a lot better I, I set it and then i can i can look around and see where i'm going up the sound i can see other boats and be really careful and uh and, you know, but in the, in the ocean, we had, I had enough people aboard, but if I, if I do a solo to Maine or I do an overnight where I'm going from, you know, Provincetown up to, up to Maine someplace overnight, which I might do by myself, then I'm going to want, want the auto helm. It's, it's safer, yeah. uh, obviously to have that. So, all right, so Dan. that's that held, held a line sa- safe and home all and I'll right. uh, be here for the next few years and uh, figure out what, what we'll do at that point after that. But, uh, it's been a great experience. It really has. And, uh, I highly recommend it to anybody who, and as we talked about, everyone's wired differently, Franz. Some, some people just feel comfortable with, uh, with, with coastal sailing and that's great. Just get out there, get out there on the water and, and, uh, uh, you know, do what you, you have to do make yourself happy on, on the water. It's a great place to be. So, Thanks for sharing your story with us, Dan. I, I always enjoy talking to you. It's good to catch up with you. Thanks for sharing with us. Well, thank you, Franz, for having me. It's always a pleasure to, to talk to you, and, and uh, it's fun. But we'll check in later on and we'll see what happens uh, in, the, in the near future, and, and I'll be listening to your podcasts uh, all the time. I thoroughly enjoy them, so keep it up. Thanks a lot, Dan. Okay, hold on. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. 